Welcome to Strings Attached. My name is Asaf Maud. I've been a musician most of my life and found out recently that I love talking to people, tell their story, and mostly I love to connect between their world and my world of music. Today's episode is a great example of that. My guest and I spoke about symmetry, the film Goodwill Hunting, and can we find music in math? So just before we start, Strings Attached is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcast. And I invite you to press the follow button so you would never miss an episode. Yeah, my name's Marcus Desotoy. I'm a professor of mathematics uh, at the University of Oxford. Um, I actually am quite greedy. I have several professorships. So I have another one, which is the Professor for the Public Understanding of Science, which I... Uh, took over the job from Richard Dawkins. Um, and I'm also a visiting professor uh, of music at the Royal Northern College of Music in Manchester. So uh, very greedy, three professorships. Well, I have none, so I well, hope... I, we, I hope we, we shall share. <laughs> exactly. So you yourself, you're a trumpet player. That's right. At what point did you find yourself uh, leaning towards math? Well, very interesting because actually uh, my trumpet playing and my mathematics kind of obsessions actually were sparked about the same time. So I was about 12 or 13 at my um, secondary school in England um, and I learned the trumpet because my music teacher said, anyone want to learn a musical instrument? Uh, and I put my hand up, sounded kind of exciting. Uh, she took us into the storeroom cupboard in the, the music department. Actually, there were only three trumpets, so I didn't really have much choice, so I learned the trumpet. Um, but it's actually about the same time that my maths teacher uh, – pointed to me in the middle of the class and said, DeSotoy, I want to see you after the class. And I thought, oh gosh, I'm in trouble. And uh, so I went to see him after the class, thought, what's my punishment? And, and actually he said, I think you should find out what mathematics is really about because this isn't what we're doing in the classroom, these kind of uh, percentages, sines and cosines, very technical kind of stuff. He said, it's something much more exciting. And he recommended a few books for me to read um, and I remember that weekend I went up with my dad to a local bookshop. We bought these books and it was like this maths teacher gave me a key to a secret garden because those books just revealed that mathematics was so much more exciting than the kind of technical things we're doing in school. Um, and I often compare it actually to music because it's as if, you know, my trumpet teacher had just said, okay, all you're going to be able to, all we're going to do is scales and arpeggios. That's all you're going to play until, you know, seven years in. And then I might give you a real piece of music to play. Um, and I think maths, we educate our kids a bit like that. The technical side at school is all the boring stuff. This teacher kind of gave me books which opened up really what maths is about. It's about kind of patterns. It's about geometry, exciting numbers, infinities, four-dimensional spaces. Um, and so these books were uh, the things which excited me about mathematics. But it's interesting because music and mathematics for me have, have been two worlds which have run in parallel. I chose the mathematics side because, frankly, you have to do a lot of hard work to be a professional musician, as you know, Asaf. Yeah. You, you probably spend a lot of time practicing. And mathematics is a little bit more, you know, you, you sit and you think and you go and have a walk and you play a bit of tennis and then suddenly you have a flash of an idea and, and it all tumbles out. So, so I thought the lazy side of me sort of went towards mathematics rather than the, 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 the hard slog of being a professional musician like yourself. 
So I'm wondering, you might be an anomaly in the academic world, you know, bouncing between two worlds and the music and the math. Do they accept you or they see you as a, as a weirdo that's coming with those ideas? Well, I think that's very interesting because I think you've tapped into a, another problem with our educational system, which is that we compartmentalize subjects too much. Um, so I think once you go into secondary school, you know, you go from the music lesson to the math lesson to the history lesson to the geography lesson, the science lesson, and you don't realize there are connections between all of these things. But I think I was actually quite lucky to go up to Oxford as a, an undergraduate because um, there, the college system in Oxford actually means you spend a lot of time with people from other subjects. So my best friends at university were was somebody doing Persian and Arabic, historian, biologist, philosopher, English literature. So I spent a lot of time actually having to justify myself as a mathematician in this group of friends. Um, and I think Oxford is very tolerant of uh, people with thinking across the boundaries. Um, so, for example, uh, I'm now at New College, one of the oldest colleges in Oxford. Um, and at lunchtime, I just love sitting next to people from other subjects and we just share ideas and we suddenly find Uh, something in common. For example, I sat next to the professor of English at um, New College and I said, oh, I've got to do a talk about Shakespeare and maths uh, and I haven't a clue what to talk about. And then he gave me all of these wonderful things that Shakespeare was very obsessed with numbers. Um, he used the number seven, for example, uh, to denote magic. So whenever a speech has seven syllables in it, Uh, which is, you know, usually Shakespeare is in 10 syllables, um, uh, iambic pentameter. But when it goes down to seven, you know there's magic around. So in Midsummer Night's Dream, lots of sevens. And he uses an 11. Interestingly, these are both prime numbers, which have kind of interesting properties to them. 11 always means you should listen because this is an important thing. So, for example, the most important speech in Shakespeare, to be or not to be, that is the question is 11 syllables. And so you suddenly wake up, whoa, that's a bit unusual. So I, actually, I think uh, we're in a lovely age where um, it's much more acceptable to, to talk across subjects. And we realize that by sharing our ideas, I think that we all make more progress. Since you're talking about different disciplines, should, should we, I'm, I'm talking now internationally, since we're now sitting in Israel, but you're coming from England, Should the students, should I as a music student, a young music student, have more math education in order to understand music better? I think there's a lot of sense to that because um, all of these subjects have these different elements running, uh, bubbling underneath them. So, you know, Stravinsky said, you know, uh, you know, music, uh, mathematics is like a, a, another language is to a poet. It's, you know, it's bubbling just underneath the surface. So I think that, you know, by learning uh, things from other disciplines, it's only going to enrich your engagement with, with the work that you're doing. So, for example, I, I did some work with Mahan Esfahani, who's a um, wonderful harpsichord player. Um, we're actually looking at whether artificial intelligence um, could uh, compose like Bach. And we wow. did a, a kind of challenge of taking a, uh, one of the English suites, and I took pieces out of the uh, English suites and asked the AI to fill it in. So it was a kind of AI-Bach hybrid piece. We played it at the Barbican. Mahan played it. And we asked the audience to 
judge where the AI had started and where it finished and the bark took over. It was very difficult for the audience. But Mahana said, um, I can tell, and one of the things you've missed in this is that Bach wasn't just interested in music. He also loved languages. So they're called the English Suites because he loved the cadences of the English language and he put that in the music. So I think, you know, there's another example where if you don't understand the these kind of cadences of the English language, how can you play a piece like the English Suite? And he said, you you didn't give the AI... Um, in the English language to learn on. So you only gave it music and not language, and therefore that's why it was not as good as the Bach. I mean, there are other reasons as well, of course. But So you, you opened the door for me. I was willing, wishing to talk to you about Bach. And I want to give you a picture of a scene of, of me, young violin player at the age of, I guess, I was 12, 13, in an exam, and I'm playing a Bach fugue, standing there, I'm playing my first, I don't know, first two, three pages, and then suddenly a click in my head, and I go into a loop. And I cannot manage to continue to, to f- go to the end of the piece, and I go back and back and back to the exact same point. And it created for me two things. One, anxiety. And secondly, I had to think, I really don't understand the music of Bach. I really cannot relate because otherwise I would be able to go on to, to get out of this loop, you know, get out of this um, intersection and drive through. And it took me many years to understand or to love or to appreciate Bach's music. Why are you drawn to his music? Why are mathematicians drawn to Bach's music? I mean, as I said, for me, it was... First of all, a nightmare. But secondly, I couldn't relate to the music. Yes, very interesting. Because I think uh, Bach, I mean, actually, I think Mitzler, Bach's uh, contemporary, uh, summed it up very nicely. That Bach's music is the process of sounding mathematics. Um, that there's so much structure that Bach loved putting in his music. And I think that's why a mathematician responds so so well to Bach because they they can see these kind of patterns that Bach is using. Um, so, for example, well, th- there's a lot of numeracy in Bach, and I'm not really interested in that. The idea that he uses threes very often, or his kind of signature number fourteen, because B A C H translates. So that's not so interesting because that's uh, not structural. The things that interest me are, for example. Um, I do a, a talk very often with a pianist about the Goldberg variations because there you see this extraordinary structure which spans the whole piece. I mean, there's um, kind of circles, of uh, lots of circles going on inside this piece. The, the canons are using, uh, these are a canon people probably remember at school where one voice starts and then a little bit later the second voice comes in uh, Uh, very often repeating what the first voice does. But Bach likes to use kind of ideas where the second voice will climb a little bit higher each time and so it creates another sort of structure in this piece. The other thing is he uses a lot of symmetry to to do kind of theme and variations. So very often you'll hear the first voice uh, shoot upwards, but then the second voice will be kind of uh, symmetrically reversed in the horizontal line and it will cascade downwards. So this is my question. As a listener... Can I hear symmetry? Yeah. This is so interesting because uh, you can really see the symmetry if you look at the score. Exactly. But but I'm I'm sitting and listening with my ears, not with my eyes. So what I think is happening is that the brain 
um, is yeah, I mean, because you've got this temporal element which somehow disrupts the ability to to see on the page the symmetry. So I think what your brain does is that it's. Uh, I mean, uh, sometimes I call mathematics the science of patterns and music the art of patterns. And I think what your brain is very often doing is, you know, what distinguishes a piece of music from just random notes or noise? It's because there's some pattern or structure in there. And that's what your brain is latching onto and is sometimes trying to anticipate where it goes. And then it might go in a different direction. And you're trying to understand, oh, why did the composer... Um, I mean, you're not consciously making this uh, thought process, but I think your brain is enjoying the fact that this new thing relates to the thing you've just heard, but is different from it. And I think that's uh, how symmetry is very helpful for Bach. He'll he'll give you a little seed element and then he'll he'll do something new, but it's not so new that it's doesn't have any relationship to the thing you've heard and so mathematics is absolutely about those structural relationships between things do you think that Bach when he composed Goldberg variations he had that in mind do you think yeah. he was thinking about it consciously yeah th this is a very good question because I think you're absolutely right there are some composers that arrive at really interesting mathematical structures in their music totally intuitively. Um, so, for example, I've done a lot of work on Messiaen, who's got a lot of fantastic mathematics in his work. And I, I genuinely think that he didn't know the maths, but he discovered the maths through his music. Bach, on the other hand, I think the things that he does are are so difficult to do just randomly or intuitively. I mean, in, in the Goldberg variations, for example, he has a very interesting exploration of all the different rhythm structures that you can make throughout the piece. And um, there's, you know, it's so precise and so exact that he must have known that he was going through all the different possibilities in a kind of really mathematical combinatorial way. And there's another clue to why Bach really knew what he was doing, because um, actually, if you look at the Goldberg variations, he also wrote 14 kind of puzzle canons, which um, are an additional uh, kind of component to those. And these canons are written as little puzzles where he gives you just a little seed of music. And then there's some weird kind of notation which you've got to decode and it's basically an algorithm which shows you how to expand the seed into a complex canon or a multi-voiced uh, piece of music I mean for example there's a beautiful thing that comes from the musical offering it's called the crab canon so it's one line of music but when you get to the end you see a clef kind of turned upside down at the end now usually the clefs are at the beginning But you realize, oh, Bach wants me to turn the piece of music upside down and play it backwards at the same time. And then the two voices together create this beautiful complexity. So for me, I think you could genuinely call Bach the first computer coder. That he is not, <laughs> that's coder, C-O-D-E-R, not C-O-D-A, musical coder. Um, because he is using these algorithms to create from simplicity something with complexity. And I, I think that really... You know, you know, you see the evidence for him really knowing what he's doing. He's not just writing music from his heart. He's writing it also from his brain. So do you think I or one should have a bit of a, a talk before listening to a piece saying, hey, this is something you should look out for or this is something, you know, at this one uh, note, maybe you might hear that, this and that. I do think that really helps um, an audience, especially when they're coming to a piece of music for the first time. I think everyone will have that experience. The first time you hear a piece of music, it often 
doesn't work for you. And if it works too quickly, often it doesn't last when you come back to it again. The pieces of music which really stay with you are those which require, I think, a little bit of investment of work and energy and, and time spent in that world. And as you listen to a piece of music again and again, you realise the connections between things later on and how they've kind of developed and become augmented from that sort of beginning moment. So I actually really, I do a lot of talks with orchestras and and, uh, chamber groups and soloists where we try and give people a little bit of a framework for how to listen to a piece of music for the first time, especially difficult music like 20th century music, which has a lot of mathematics in it and is very difficult to listen to for the first time. You know, music should just really exist on its own. It should work on it. If, it, if you have to do too much work, um, then then I think you've got a problem. If you've over-intellectualized the music. So it's a real balance. Uh, you know, you can help somebody into a piece of music, um, but it's got to work in its own right somehow. <laughs> Some years ago, I played in this orchestra called West Eastern Divan, conducted by Daniel Barenboim. And we got an email uh, just before getting to, the, to our um, session saying, this summer we're going to study the Schoenberg Variations for Orchestra. I opened my computer and I listened to a recording of the piece. I survived maybe 20 seconds. I did not enjoy any bit of the music. We came to the first rehearsal, and Barenboim sat down and told us, it's going to take us 15 rehearsals, but we're going to decipher together this musical piece. So we talked about Bach, which was very difficult for me to relate to when I was younger. And now I'm talking about Schoenberg, that was very difficult for me to relate as an adult, because I felt that he's composing number he, he numbers he's composing um structures that i do not relate to and again there is no melody there is nothing for, to warm my heart but after 15 rehearsals i can surely say that i actually like this music i understood the logic behind it i'm not sure that the audience that listened to our performances enjoyed it as much as we did yeah so my que- I have two questions for that. One, do mathematicians adore people like Bach and Schoenberg because they took it to the next level? And secondly, how would you, I mean, how would you help us musicians or, or listeners to relate to this kind of music? You're absolutely right that uh, time spent inside that music just helps you to understand it better and and it's difficult music when you first approach it but you have to remember as well that you know i think that um you know we're used to certain sounds of music and what we will call melody you think we hear a lot of mozart we hear a lot of beethoven um but at their time they were also very challenging because it was a new sort of sound world so so i think that you know, there's a sort of historical element to, uh, you know, you can only really appreciate 20th century music once you've been, I think, through this journey of hearing the transitions from the Baroque to the classical to the romantic through through to the modern kind of era. So so it, it, it is a journey that you're on. And, 
you know, I think it's, people often say in my own subject, mathematics, wow, that's, it's far too difficult. I just didn't enjoy it. But I think we should sometimes celebrate the, the difficulty of things because it becomes much more valuable when you, you then sort of master it. Um, so the, one of my favorite movies is Goodwill Hunting. Um, with Matt Damon, who's this janitor, um, and he's the janitor in a maths department, and people scribble up these challenging problems on the blackboard, and overnight he sees these problems, and he's just a genius mathematically, he solves them, and the professors come in in the morning and are like completely blown away by these solutions, don't know who's done it. Now, for me, the interesting thing about that movie is that at the end of the movie, Matt Damon doesn't decide to become a mathematician he ends up chasing this woman that he's uh, after. Why? Because the woman is much more challenging. He doesn't understand the woman. It's, uh, you know, that's the mystery. The mathematics is too easy for him and he's not interested in it. So, so for me, part of the reason I carry on being a mathematician is that all the problems I can't solve, they're the challenging things. And when I do solve them, the, the kind of emotional buzz I get out of that, the adrenaline, the aha moment, that is worth all the effort up to that point. And I think it's the same with a piece of music. Sometimes a piece of music will just not work on first listening, but the more time you spend with it, the more it just works on you and, and you understand its internal workings and, and you you can then fall in love with it. We're talking mostly about classical music, classical composers using different patterns. Moving to nowadays pop culture or modern, let's say modern fun music or whatever you name it, they're using simplified versions. They're using um, very basic equations, if you will, of, of music So people can relate. The music is shortened in normally one key. And, you know, it's very easy to relate to. Do you think that it basically, it narrows down our way of thinking so, so we can relate to music in, in an easier way? Oh, well, I think, you know, that's often where people enter the world of music. And it's, you know, you... You can't enter somewhere incredibly complex and, and really feel at home there. So I think, you know, it's, it's a fair place to, to start where um, you know, a lot of music is four beats in the bar. It's a very simple sort of structure, maybe, you know, um, a, a chorus and then a, a, a tune. And so the, the, the structure is simple. But I think after a while people want more and that's when they'll start to explore maybe they'll move to a little bit of jazz where um you know jazz is exploring slightly more different harmonic structures different rhythmic structures if you think of dave brubeck's take five oh right why not have a piece in five beats uh, and people kind of enjoy the disruption of of that sort of one two three one two one two three one two uh, and then you you know someone like bjork um, she's got uh, a piece which is 17 beats. Again, you're, you're naturally expecting something which is 16 because that's four lots of four and she puts an extra beat on and it creates something really interesting to, to listen and to try to dance to. So, so I think, you know, it's, it's fair enough to start with uh, a slightly simplified kind of sound world. But I think once you, once you spend too much time in there, you realize, oh, it all sounds a bit the same. Give me something new and, you know, Before too long, you'll get to Zanarkis. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Maybe not. <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> I love the way you were talking about numbers, about math, your passion. And I'm part of this world as well. Maybe this podcast, if you know, 
bringing the music, talking about music in a way that is easier for people to listen. Why is it important to you? And why is it important to people to have that? I mean, I many times find myself in concerts on stage giving a few words of, I don't want to say explanation, but a description of what's going to happen or a background. Why do people relate to that? I know I understand it in the, the music world because sometimes they say, you know, I don't really understand what's happening. So for me to talk to them makes them feel better. Yeah. Why do you do that? I mean, you wrote numerous books. You, you have, I don't know how many shows, TV shows and like TED lectures. Why do you do that? Well, I suppose I want to do what my teacher did, you know, going right back to the beginning again uh, for, for me by giving me this kind of key to a secret garden full of extraordinarily beautiful ideas. And I think you're very lucky in music that people can go for the first time into a concert hall and experience music because we have ears um, and it, it immediately kind of resonates with our emotional world. I mean, I think, you know, I would say there's something very special about music. It's almost as if composers have understood how to code in sound um, what is happening in the brain when we're experiencing certain emotions. You know, there's probably a, almost a dictionary that can go on. And, and people very often talk about similar emotional experiences that they're having. You know, why do we, I mean, very simplistically, but why is a, a minor scale somehow associated with sadness? I mean, that is pretty universal. But for me, as a mathematician, I've got a real challenge because we don't have mathematical ears. So I actually have to work a lot harder to to bring people into this world. And and I think, you know, there's a lot of prejudice from uh, school background that people kind of hate mathematics because it's been so boring in school or because um, there's an obsession with getting things right all the time. And, you know, I, I, I try to give people the idea that, look, you don't have to understand all of this, just in the same way that you don't understand the whole way that, you know, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony is put together, but you can experience a bit of it for the first time. So when I give a talk, I try and give a, at least people a feel for, you know, an exciting idea why, like why there are different sorts of infinity, some bigger than others. Now, that's something we teach our undergraduates in second year uh, at, at Oxford. That's quite sophisticated. But the ideas are simple enough to give people a feel for, wow, different infinities, some bigger than others. Um, so I think that there's, there's real beauty out there that people are missing. And it, it really hurts me that you know, it required this special teacher to give me this key when I was 12 to give me access to this garden. Why can't everybody be given keys to the garden, uh, this beautiful garden of mathematics? Um, so, you know, that is my kind of mission is to almost pay back my teacher for what he did for me and, and to try and excite people about um, what mathematics is really about. And it, often the response I get is, well, if, if if that's what mathematics is, then then I like that. That's really exciting. You know, I like the idea of a, something in higher dimensions, which sounds kind of like science fiction or um, interesting prime numbers with funny properties and things like that. So so I think that the, we're, we're a little bit timid in mathematics education. We just stick to kind of rather simple stuff. And I try in my books and in my um, lectures and TV series to sort of take people to the big stories of maths. You know, the, the, I want them to hear the Beethoven of mathematics, not the scales that they have been sort of tortured with at school. We talked a lot about how can we found, find math in music. 
can we find music in math? Yes. And I think this is really important that I think a lot of people think mathematics is kind of an emotionless, cold, logical subject. And I think that what I try and do is to show people pieces of mathematics that almost have a musical quality to them. So, for example, one of the first beautiful pieces of mathematics I saw when I was at school was um, a proof that there are infinitely many prime numbers. So these the primes are indivisible numbers like seven and 17. Um, but how do we know they don't run out? And the proof is very simple. It just uses kind of basic school level mathematics, but it has a kind of musical quality to it. It's almost as if you're building the thing up and then there's this kind of moment uh, of kind of change and transformation. And then you sort of almost cascade down to the final QED, the final chord. So I think showing people the emotional journey of a piece of mathematics, um, you'll reveal to them that it has actually quite a musical quality. And this is very interesting because actually I've done some work now with a composer, Emily Howard, in um, in England. We've set up a centre, the Royal Northern College of Music, called PRISM, which stands for Practice and Research in Science and Music. Actually, it's my kind of dream because it's a sort of um, analogue of a society that Bach was part of, uh, the, uh, you know, the Society for Musical and Scientific Correspondence that he set up with Mitzler. Um, maybe that's a bit grandiose, but, uh, <laughs> but I did, created a piece with Emily, um, which is a quartet uh, for, for string quartet, which is called Four Musical Proofs and a Conjecture. And what I did was I explained some proofs like this proof for the infinitely many number of primes that I thought had a kind of musical quality to them, that the, the journey of the proof had a kind of music to it. And once she understood the proof, she then thought, well, what does that mean for me in music? Um, how would I interpret that kind of journey? Uh, and then she wrote four little pieces for this string quartet, um, which were not mirroring in a literal way the journey, but in the, the kind of the philosophy of the journey. And um, so it, it's, it sort of shows that there is this genuine connection between the sort of logical journey you go on in mathematics and the kind of musical uh, journey that you go on in a piece of music. So, um, and we really enjoyed doing this piece. And it, again, it's a piece which benefits from a little bit of talk beforehand to tell you what's going to happen. So let me give you a little example because it's uh, rather fun. I mean, one one of the things I love in mathematics is showing why two things which look completely different are actually connected. Um, uh, so for example, here's a simple one. Um, if I add up the odd numbers, so one, one plus three is four, one plus three plus five is nine, one plus three plus five plus seven is 16, Now, you'll notice that every time I add the odd numbers up, I get a square number. One, four, nine, 16. You go, well, okay, why is that? Why is there a connection between those two things? And so the proof will be showing why odd numbers, when you add them up, that that has something to do with square numbers. So I showed Emily some proofs like this. And then she said, okay, I'm going to do something. I'm going to take a piece of Schubert. So she took a little bit of Death and the Maiden one of the most glorious quartets ever. Um, and she took a little bit of um, one of uh, Beethoven, uh, I think it was uh, quartet number 130. And she said, okay, I'm going to try and transform the Beethoven 
into the Schubert in a natural way. And, and for her, it was a really interesting musical challenge. So you hear the Beethoven, you gradually hear it morph and change. And at some point, you suddenly hear the Schubert creeping in. Um, and it's, you know, it's a really intriguing piece of music. And, and she said, I now use that with my music students as a challenge. You know, take two pieces of music and just see whether there's some way that you can make a journey from one to the other. And by doing that, you might discover interesting things about the pieces of music themselves and, you know, connections between two composers that perhaps have some connection, but maybe you, you can show within one single piece what that connection is. What do you find is your greatest achievement so far by, by all, all the things that you're doing? That's easy. Um, it's the discovery of a symmetrical object um, in very high dimensional space that nobody had ever seen before. And um, for me, the wonderful thing about mathematics is m making a discovery of something nobody's ever seen before. And there's just something wonderful about mathematics because once that's discovered it will never be undiscovered it will never be kind of shown to be wrong because the power of mathematical proof is that you can get 100 certainty about something so you know the proofs of the ancient greeks that proof that there are infinitely many primes is tr true today as it was 2000 years ago there are very few subjects which you can have that kind of longitudinal sense of uh truth uh, i mean music Yeah, yeah, we still listen to the music of the Baroque, um, but the music of 2,000 years ago, well, we don't even really know what it sounds like. I mean, I think music does have a kind of timeless quality to it, um, but mathematics, there's, there's a sense of immortality you can almost get because this discovery of this symmetrical object yeah. is going to be there forever. And um, for me, that is my proudest moment, discovering something you know, a truth about the universe. This is not something which is local to England or our, our planet or our solar system. It's a truth wherever you are in the universe that this new object that I discovered um, uh, has these beautiful properties that I proved about it. And that for me gives me the most extraordinary uh, buzz. That is my proudest. That's what I will have tattooed on my <laughs> arm, <laughs> the discovery of this object if I ever got a tattoo. You are extremely passionate about math and extremely passionate about music. You are an avid musician as a mathematician. Would you choose now differently if you were? How interesting. Know? Yes. You see, I think one of my fantasies was uh, actually not to be a performer, because I think that's... Um, there's something interesting about music that you have the composers and the performers. And um, we don't have that so much in mathematics. We're all really, in some sense, all composers rather than, than perf uh, technical performers um, of, of the music. Um, so I think that a small bit of me wishes perhaps I had chosen the musical route and gone and being a composer. And I think that's, I'm slightly living out that fantasy with this um, collaboration with Emily Howard uh, and the Royal Northern College of Music, because, um, you know, she, she's doing a lot of the composition, but together we're really exploring the, the intersections between our worlds and, and discovering that there are things in my world that 
the composers have not considered yet and yet are really fruitful for for composition so i think i would still choose to become a mathematician if you gave me the the choice again but but i think that it comes back to this thing we talked about at the beginning that you know it's really important to cross boundaries and and every subject is really got some connection with other ones and i think this is why you know the podcast you're doing is so important because we really need to break down these barriers between being a mathematician and being a musician um and being a historian or a philosopher or or, or whatever that there are so many uh, synergies between these two and and for me that's i, I want to be doing all of these things i tell you one of my favorite books that i read when i was a student is called uh, the glass bead game it's by herman hess and it's a game a futuristic game that he came up with where the player of this game has to synthesize in the play all of these different elements the idea of music history mathematics science and you play the game at its real limit by by bringing these things together so I think for me that is my aspiration is is to become a great player uh, at the glass bead game. Such a great pleasure to talk to Marcus de Sotoy. Could you imagine there are so many parallels between math and music? The music played in this episode is from Bach Goldberg Variations, played by my friends Hadar Cohen, Yoni Gertner, and Gal Niska. They were gracious to allow me to play their recording in this episode. If you like this episode, maybe share it with a friend who might enjoy it as well. And don't forget to rate us five stars on Apple or Spotify. I'm happy to hear back from you, and I'm available on the Facebook page, Strings Attached Podcast, or in the email address asafpodcast at gmail.com. I'm Asaf Maoz. Next episode is up in two weeks' time. Music